Psalm chapter 119, verses 15 through 16. I will meditate on your precepts and con contemplate your ways. I will delight myself in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Good evening and welcome again. We're grateful for your presence. As was mentioned a moment ago, we've got a good number of folks that are away on a mission trip and we pray that they'll have a safe journey. It, leads, it leaves quite a void when our young people are gone. And so we hope and pray that they will have a safe return. But we're proud of them and the, the fact that they're willing to use their summer vacation to help better the lives of other people. And in two weeks, they'll be at Getwell doing another VBS. And so we appreciate them. We're grateful for Jared and the great work that he does with our young people. We're very blessed to have a large number of young people. And we, we're thankful to God for the influence that they have, not just on their peers, but on many, many people. We're going to be looking at Psalm 119 tonight as we think about the indispensable word. The psalmist, as was read a moment ago, said, I will meditate on your precepts and contemplate your ways. I will delight myself in your statutes. I will not forget your word. In Psalm 119, we have what I tend to think of as an exaltation of God's word. And over and over again, the psalmist talks about his great love for God's Word. His love for God's Word is such that he sought to internalize it, to memorize the Scriptures. In verse 11, he said, Your Word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. On another occasion, he would speak of his great love for God's law. And he said, It's my meditation all the day. In 105, that is Psalm 119, 105, the psalmist said, Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my pathway. God's word gives light and direction to those of us who live here on planet Earth. I want tonight to talk for just a moment or two about the, indis the indispensable word, and we're going to do that in just a moment. Uh, before we do, I do want to mention very quickly, I know I have tried to plug our VBS in the last couple of weeks. And our own VBS will be coming up very soon. And we're going to need people to help with that. And so if you can help in any capacity, I want to encourage you to see one of the elders, see Bill Howard. I know that, I know that your help would be greatly, greatly appreciated. I also want to make mention of the fact that, as always, we have visitors with us, and we're grateful for your presence. It might be the case that you're looking for a church home. I always try to invite people to consider the work here because I believe that this is a great church. And what makes it great is the people here. And so we want, we want you to know that we would love to have you come and work with us. So tonight we think about the indispensable word of Almighty God. What is it that makes God's word indispensable? And really the word indispensable carries with it the idea of that which is essential. Those of us that believe what is recorded in this book, we believe that God's Word is essential. It is essential for us because we understand that ultimately it will lead us safely from planet Earth to eternity. Our goal is heaven. And so we believe that what God has said or what God has revealed in this book is truth. Jesus said on one occasion, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. So what about this indispensable word? What is it that makes it 
an essential part of life. Let me just suggest, first of all, it is essential, indispensable, because it is inspired. The book that we're talking about has a divine source, that is Almighty God. This book that we call the Bible is not the product of mankind. Many, many years ago, David, and David, of course, was a man after God's own heart. He was the first king over the United Kingdom. And David said in 2 Samuel chapter 23 at verse 2, The Spirit of the Lord spoke by me. And he said, His word was on my tongue. David had the opportunity to write many of the Psalms that we had the opportunity to read and to contemplate from day to day. David was an inspired penman. It's interesting to note that the 66 books that we call Scripture, comprising the Old and New Testaments, 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 books in the New Testament. Every single book is inspired by Almighty God. Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 3, all Scripture, every Scripture, is inspired of God. And the idea is, it is God-breathed. This book did not originate with mankind. Peter said, no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. In other words, mankind did not come up with a message like this. Did you know that over the course of about 16 centuries, some 1,600 years, 40 different writers put this book together. That is, they wrote under the direction of the Holy Spirit. Peter said, holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. In other words, they were born along by the Holy Spirit. Jesus would say in John 16 at verse 13, Howbeit when he, the Spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth. Can we be assured that what we have in our hands that we call the Bible is indeed the inspired Word of God? Yes, we can. There have been a lot of folks down through the years that have sifted over and over the 66 books of the Bible. They have put it to the test, as we would say. Their conclusion, this is the Word of God. Over the span of some 1,600 years, 40 different writers from varying backgrounds and under different circumstances wrote this book. And yet, the harmony, the symmetry of this book is absolutely amazing. There's no way mankind could have ever put a book like this together. I mean, think about it. It is united in purpose and theme. It presents one grand system of religion. In the Old Testament, the writers are pointing towards the coming of the Messiah, the redemptive plan of Almighty God. And then the New Testament is an affirmation that what God had foretold of in the Old Testament, that it was being fulfilled. And so this is God's holy word. One of the reasons it is indispensable in my mind is that this book is not like other books. It's not on a plane like some of the great books that have been penned by mankind, whether those books be literature or fiction or whatever. But rather, this is the very word of Almighty God. 
And so Paul said all scripture, every scripture is inspired of God. And he said it is profitable. This book that we call the Bible is profitable. It was given to help us, to aid us, to point us in the right direction. And we'll talk more about that in just a moment or two. So this is the inspired word of God. And as we think about God's holy word and the fact that it is inspired, I want to just share with you very quickly that those of, those of us who are living today, we are living under the last will and testament of Jesus, the Son of God. The Hebrew writer tells us that God at various times in different ways spoke in times past under the fathers by the prophets. But he said he has in these last days, that is in the Christian dispensation, spoken unto us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, according to Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. What you have to understand is, today, we're not under the law of the patriarchs. We're not under the law of Moses, but rather we're under the law of Christ. Jesus, of course, has all authority. That's what he said in Matthew 28, 18. All authority, all power has been given unto me in heaven and on earth. God the Father, when Jesus was transfigured on the mountaintop in the presence of Peter, James, and John, said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And then the exhortation, hear him. Whatever the Lord says, we want to hear. Whatever he says to do, we want to do. We want to live in compliance with his will, with his word. So today we are under the law of Christ, Galatians 6.2. It's called the perfect law of liberty, according to James chapter 1, verse 25. This is God's last will and testament. It is the faith that is that system of faith that has been once for all delivered to mankind. There are no modern day revelations that will come to pass. Everything that we need to know about life and godliness Everything that we need to know about how to live for God, serve God, worship God, it's been revealed to us right here in this book that we call the Bible. We can take this, this book and use it as a blueprint for how to live. There are a lot of folks that maybe fail to understand that this book is a blueprint for life. When I think about a blueprint, the term pattern comes to mind. And Paul would say in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13, Hold fast the form, the pattern of sound words, which you've heard from me in faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. So taking this book and honoring it as the inspired word of Almighty God. And then there is a second thing I want to share with you. And that is that this book that we call the Bible is the indestructible word. There have been a lot of folks down through the years that have done, as we would say, their dead level best to circumvent the scriptures, to destroy the scriptures, to lessen their influence in the lives of people. Go back and read what some of the historians have said in days gone by. There have been people that have sought to the best of their ability to purge this book from existence. But here's what Isaiah said, and Isaiah wrote about 750 years before Jesus ever came to earth. In Isaiah chapter 40 at verse 8, he said, The word of our God endures forever. 
despite the futile efforts of mankind. Isaiah said, and Isaiah was prophetically speaking, God's word, he said, is going to last forever. Here's what Jesus said in Matthew 24, 35. Heaven and earth will pass away. But he said, my word will by no means pass away. Do you remember the apostle Peter in writing in 1 Peter chapter 1? He talked about how the flower fades, the grass withers. But he said, the word of the Lord endures forever. God's word has remained intact. What we need to know about life and godliness, what we need to know to get us safely to heaven has been preserved in this book that we call the Bible. Even though people have sought to destroy it, to destroy its contents, to destroy its influence, they failed. And they will continue to fail. Why? Because God in heaven has said that his word will endure forever and providentially he will bring that to pass. I believe it with all my heart. It's one of the things that maybe we ought to think about just very quickly with regard to this book that we call the Bible and the fact that it is indestructible. Everything that we possess here on planet Earth, when Jesus comes, if he comes in our lifetime, everything that we possess will be destroyed, won't it? The Bible says it will be destroyed by fire. The elements, the works therein, they'll be burned up. The only thing that I know of that will survive by way of that which we possess here on planet Earth. Into eternity is God's Word. This is the only book. Think about all of the books that have been penned down through the ages. Think about all of the, think about all of the things that, all of the gadgets and all of the buildings and everything that we see with the visible eye. Everything will perish. Not so with this book that we call the Bible. That's why it's absolutely essential that we read it, study it, meditate upon it, memorize it, and live it out every day here on planet Earth. I was thinking a moment ago, as, on, as I was on my way to services tonight, I was thinking about young people that are in in school, and particularly young, young people that are in a university or college setting. Typically speaking, when young, young people start college or start a class in college or in a university, they will be assigned a textbook. Now, a good student is going to secure a copy of that textbook. I was talking to a friend of mine the other day, and he was telling me about when he started graduate school many, many years ago. And he said that one of the classes that, that he took was what we would call a monster class. And he said the first day of class, the professor was a new professor. The professor that typically taught that class was on a sabbatical. And so he said, this guy stands up in front of the class and he says, I know what you people are thinking. You're thinking that because professor that typically teaches this class is not here to teach you're going to just sail through this class he said I got news for you that's not going to be the case this buddy of mine told me this guy kept his word he said he started going over 
the textbooks. I think he said they had three textbooks to read and to study. One of those textbooks, he said, this professor said, we're not going to cover any of the material in class. But he said, I want you to read that textbook from cover to cover. And he said, when I say read it, I mean you better master the material. He told me he made a D minus in the class. I said, well, D means diploma, but not necessarily in graduate school. You have to have B. But nonetheless, think about, here is God's word. This book is going to judge us. Does it not stand to reason that we would want to make sure that not only do we secure a copy of this book, but that we know it inside and out? Jesus said in John 12, verse 48, He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my word hath one that judgeth him. He said, The words that I have spoken, the same, shall judge him in the last day. All Jesus is saying is, My word, the gospel, is going to judge you. The Bible says in Romans chapter 2, verse 2, that the judgment of God is according to truth. Somebody might ask the question, what is truth? Jesus said, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth, John 17, 17. In Romans 2, 16, Paul said that there is coming a day in which God will judge the hearts of man by my gospel, according to Jesus Christ. The gospel will judge us one day. The importance of knowing this book further Heightened, I believe, by the words of John in Revelation chapter 20. The picture is that of the judgment. And John said, he saw the dead, the small and great, standing before the throne of God. And he said the books were opened. The books that John was talking about, I believe, are the the scriptures. He said the books were opened. He said another book was opened, which is the book of life. But this book, on that great and final day, that's the book that's going to be opened, and that's going to be the book that will judge us. So here's the question. In light of that, how well do we know the Scriptures? Are we living in harmony with what God has said? You know, Paul said, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us shall give an account of himself to God. The bottom line is we're all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. We're going to be judged on the basis of what we have done in this body. The standard, not the writings of men, not what the majority says, not Not my opinion, but God's holy and inspired word. I would encourage you, take this book and master its contents. Because this is the book that will judge you and me. So, we talk about the inspiration of God's word. The fact that it is indestructible. And there's a third thing that I want you to see very quickly. And that is, God's word is informative. 
the design, the design of Scripture is to inform, correct, encourage, enlighten. There are a lot of terms that could be used. Think again about what Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 3. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, thoroughly furnished unto every good work. Let me just begin by saying that when we think about the word of Almighty God, first and foremost, it educates. God's word is intended to educate or enlighten the mind. That's why the psalmist spent so much time reading and studying and meditating on this book. Because he believed that it would educate or enlighten. How do we determine what's right and wrong? What's the standard? How are we going to judge what is good or bad? How can we make a distinction between truth and error? The only way that I know is to have a standard. That standard is God's holy word. What we need to understand is God wants us to educate ourselves in His Word. He wants us to have a working knowledge of this book. You remember in, do you remember in Matthew chapter 19 when the religious leaders approached Jesus and they came to Him asking a question about divorce? Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? Here's what Jesus said, Have you not read? There are a lot of people in our world today, they don't, they don't know the first thing about Scripture. They have no, no idea what God's Word has said or what God's Word says. They are unenlightened. They are uneducated. Do you remember the people of Hosea's day? Hosea, of course, was writing to the nation of Israel people that were in a covenant relationship with Almighty God, the very custodians of Scripture. And he said, the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. And the reason he said is because there's no truth, nor mercy, nor knowledge of God in the land. They were bankrupt, biblically speaking. There are a lot of folks in our world today, they are bankrupt when it comes to a knowledge of God's holy word. How many times have you heard somebody say, I don't know what the Bible says? Or pick a subject, any subject, and begin talking with somebody about it. And sometimes you will hear the response, I didn't know that. I had no idea that was in there. We have to investigate. Think about education. When, when we send our children to school, we, we do so with the intent of enlightening their minds, broadening their minds. The only way that I know to understand what the Bible says is to spend time with it, read it and study it and meditate upon it. It's going to take a lot of time. But over the course of a lifetime, you can learn a lot of great truths. So God's Word educates, but there's a second thing, it emancipates. What do I mean by that? It is the gospel that saves people from sin, isn't it? The only message that I know that can make a difference in the lives of people is this book that we call the Bible. The problem of the human family is sin. 
Paul said in Romans chapter 3, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. He would say there's none righteous, no, not one. The only remedy to a life of sin is the blood of Jesus. How do we learn about the blood of Jesus? By preaching the gospel. Do you remember on Pentecost Day, the Bible tells us that the apostle Peter preached the gospel. He along with the other apostles. The focal point of their message was Jesus of Nazareth. The one that had been put to death by lawless hands. The very one that God had raised from the dead. In verse 36 the Bible says, Let all the house of Israel know assuredly that this same Jesus whom you have crucified, that God has made him both Lord and Christ. Luke tells us in verse 37 that those who were present in Jerusalem on that occasion were pricked or cut to the heart. And they asked Peter and the other apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter said, repent, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Verse 41 says that those who gladly received his word were baptized. Some 3,000 people yielded obedience to the gospel on that day. How are people going to know to be saved outside this book that we call the Bible? You can't be saved separate and apart from what the scripture says. Jesus said you shall know the truth, the truth shall make you free. Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 3, at verse 4, that God would have all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. You ever heard somebody say, I just can't understand what the Bible says. I can't understand truth. Well, Jesus said you can understand truth. As a matter of fact, the fundamentals of the faith are penned in such a way so that people of little education or understanding intellectually speaking, can come to a knowledge of the truth. We can know the truth. In Ephesians chapter 3, the apostle Paul said that he received revelation from Almighty God. He said he took that revelation and wrote it down in a few words. He said, whereby when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. Paul said, look, God in heaven revealed his word to me. I took that revelation and I put it in human words. So that when people read this book, what can they do? They can understand it and they can obey it. Paul would say, be not unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Does God want us to be enlightened about the truth of Almighty God? Does God want us to know what to do to be saved? Yes. In Acts chapter 8, when that great persecution swept the early church, the Bible says in verse 1 that the disciples were scattered abroad with the exception of the apostles. And those who were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. In verse 5, Philip was said to have gone down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to those people. When those people believed that the things that Philip preached concerning the kingdom of God, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible says they were baptized, both men and women. What did they do? They heard the gospel. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. Romans 10, 17. As a result of their faith in Almighty God, they repented of their sins, confessed His name, were baptized into Christ, and God put them in the church. They enjoyed emancipation, liberation from sin. There's a third thing that I want you to consider with me for a moment. And that is, God's Word elevates. You ever thought about, we're living in a day and time 
when there are a lot of people, politi politically speaking and socially speaking, that just don't like this book that we call the Bible? You ever wondered, why do people fear this book so much? I mean, why, why the rush to expunge it from the public sector? Why take it out of our schools? Why take it out of our courthouses? Why remove it from government? Why remove it from our homes? What do we have to fear? I mean, what is it that people are so scared of that we just can't take this book anymore? This book will elevate the human family. Let me just give you an example of what I'm talking about. Turn, if you would, to Romans chapter 13 for just a minute. Now, now think about how God's Word elevates. Paul would say in Colossians chapter 3 at verse 16, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. In other words, let God's Word find a home in your heart. When it finds a home in your heart, what's it going to do? It's going to produce fruit, isn't it? So, let's just say that we have the opportunity to stand before the Senate, to stand before Congress, to stand before the President or other power makers, power people in our society. And we're going to give a defense for why God's Word will elevate the human family. We've got to make a strong defense. We've got to assure people that you don't have to fear this message. Just listen to what Paul said in verse 8. Owe no one anything except to love one another. I want to ask you a question. Would our society be better off loving one another? I mean, could anybody find fault with those of us who belong to this this country, those of us who are citizens in this great nation, who could find fault with a book that says to love one another? Would that not help our nation? Would that not help our families? Would that not help our schools? And listen also to what he said. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery. You know, adultery is a plague in our society. Why would anyone have a problem with a book that says to married men and women, honor your marriage vows? I mean, why should we have a problem with that? I mean, think about what Jesus said, what God has joined together, let not man put asunder. Can you find fault with a gracious God in heaven that would say, look, that's your wife, that's your husband, you two need to be together faithfully. Anybody have a problem with that? Then listen to what he said. You shall not murder. I'm going to tell you who needs that message. Memphis, Tennessee. New York City. Chicago. Atlanta. San Francisco. Los Angeles. Boston. Washington. You shall not murder. Can you imagine a book that is feared by so many people in our culture today, and yet this very book is a book that says you don't need to be out killing people. Why should we fear a book like that? Why in the world, why in the world would people in Washington be afraid of a book 
that tells people about the sanctity of human life. I don't get it. Honestly, I don't understand it. Listen to what he says. You shall not steal. What's your property is your property. What's my property is my property. That means you don't take my property and I don't take your property. Now, there are a lot of folks in our world today, they are, as some folks say, thieving thieves. And they will steal any and everything. But you see, this book says you're not to steal. Why in the world would we fear a book that says do not steal? Would that not, would that not make this a better place to live? Do you know why people are killed in broad daylight in this city? It's because sometimes they're trying to get a possession that doesn't belong to them. Then here's what he said. You shall not bear false witness. Being people of our word. Boy, we need, we need that in our society, don't we? I know those guys in Washington, they need it. They need to learn how to tell the truth. Why would we have a problem with a book that would, that would say, let your yes be yes and your no, no. Just be a person of your word. Man, we need that in our society. We're afraid of this book. We don't want this book. We don't need it. We don't need this book. We're too, bad. We're too good for it. We're too intellectual. It's not politically correct. We need it. We just don't know it. And then here's what he said. You shall not covet. And the idea is that here's somebody that sees something that's not theirs and they begin to plot and to plan to devise a way, a means, to get what is not theirs. Whatever the circumstances. However unscrupulous it may be. Why would we have a problem with that? Covetousness can lead to a lot of problems, can't it? Now listen to what he says. And if there is any other commandment, all are summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. That's just one example, but my point is this. This book is intended to elevate the human family. Where this book goes, the lives of people are changed for the better. When this book is not opened and used and internalized, mayhem exists. Read Hosea chapter 4. There was no truth, nor mercy, nor knowledge of God in the land. As a result of that, Hosea said, there's killing and stealing and lying and committing adultery. He said, with bloodshed after bloodshed, they break all restraint. This book works. It elevates. I promise you, we could make a strong case for the elevation of this book in society. But sadly, people just don't understand it. 
Very quickly, let me just share with you one other thing. This book is intended to encourage. I can go back and I can read the Old Testament scriptures and I can be encouraged over and over again. Paul said in Romans chapter 15 verse 4 that those things that were written before time were written for our learning. That we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. Go back and read about the life of David. When you're down and discouraged and despondent in life, read the Psalms. I promise you it'll pick you up. If you're having trouble in life, look at his life. Boy, you'll be inspired. That's just one great example. This book will encourage. It's intended to do that. So I close tonight by saying that the Bible is an indispensable book. It's essential. We have to have it. That's why the psalmist said, Your words are lamp unto my feet and a light unto my pathway. Without it, we're lost. We're groping in darkness. Maybe you're here tonight and you're not a Christian. Could I encourage you to come to Christ believing that Jesus is the Son of God, repenting of every sin, confessing His name before others, being immersed in water so that every sin can be washed away. Revelation chapter 1, verse 5. If you're here tonight and you're not faithful to the cause of Christ, could we pray with you and for you? As a family, we would love to pray with you and we believe that God will abundantly pardon. James said, confess your faults one to another, pray one for another. We'd be happy to do that with you tonight as we stand and sing.